This is Our American Stories. An Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, spoke to the United Nations General Assembly in New York not long ago. And it was such a compelling speech, we thought we'd bring it to you. And for a reason, what Netanyahu's talking about here, the disease that impacts the Middle East, Israel, and the United States, and that's militant Islam, was at the core of this address and so was the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And nobody's a better storyteller about such matters because Bibi Netanyahu has lived this. Let's take a listen. When the United Nations supported the establishment of a Jewish state in 1947, it recognized our historical and our moral rights in our homeland and to our homeland. Yet today, nearly 70 years later, the Palestinians still refuse to recognize those rights. Not our right to a homeland, not our right to a state, not our right to anything. And this remains the true core of the conflict, the persistent Palestinian refusal to recognize the Jewish state in any boundary. You see, this conflict is not about the settlements. It never was. The conflict raged for decades before there was a single settlement, when Judea, Samaria, and Gaza were all in Arab hands. And when we uprooted all 21 settlements in Gaza and withdrew from every last inch of Gaza, we didn't get peace from Gaza. We got thousands of rockets fired at us from Gaza. This conflict rages because for the Palestinians, the real settlements thereafter are Haifa, Jaffa, and Tel Aviv. Israel itself, he's saying. And by the way, we love the way Netanyahu tells the story of the problems that surround Israel. Netanyahu continues, he does not dismiss the importance of settlements, but he shines a light on another much less discussed obstacle to peace. Now, mind you, the issue of settlements is a real one. And it can and must be resolved in final negotiation, final status negotiations. But this conflict has never been about the settlements or about establishing a Palestinian state. It's always been about the existence of a Jewish state, a Jewish state in any boundary. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel is ready, I am ready to negotiate all final status issues. But one thing I will never negotiate, our right to the one and only Jewish state. Wow, sustained applause for the Prime Minister of Israel and the General Assembly. The change may be coming sooner than I thought. Had the Palestinians said yes to a Jewish state in 1947, there would have been no war, no refugee, or no refugees, rather, and no conflict. And when the Palestinians finally say yes to a Jewish state, we will be able to end this conflict once and for all. Now, here's the tragedy. Because... You see, the Palestinians are not only trapped in the past. 
their leaders are poisoning the future. I want you to imagine a day in the life of a 13-year-old Palestinian boy. I'll call him Ali. Ali wakes up before school. He goes to practice with a soccer team named after Dalal Mugrabi, a Palestinian terrorist responsible for the murder of a busload of 37 Israelis. At school, Ali attends an event sponsored by the Palestinian Ministry of Education honoring Baha Alian, who last year murdered three Israeli civilians. On his walk home, Ali looks up at a towering statue erected just a few weeks ago by the Palestinian Authority to honor Abu Sukar, who detonated a bomb in the center of Jerusalem, killing 13 Isra 15 Israelis. When Ali gets home, he turns on the TV and sees an interview with a senior Palestinian official, Jibril Rajoub, who says that if he had a nuclear bomb, he detonated over Israel that very day. Ali then turns on the radio and he hears President Abbas's advisor, Sultan Abu el urging Palestinians, here's a quote, to slit the throats of Israelis wherever you find them. Ali checks his Facebook and he sees a recent post by President Abbas's Fatah party calling the massacre of 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics a, quote, heroic act. On YouTube, Ali watches a clip of President Abbas himself saying, we welcome every drop of blood spilled in Jerusalem. Direct quote. Over dinner, Ali asks his mother, what would happen if he killed a Jew and went to an Israeli prison? Here's what she tells him. She tells him he'd be paid thousands of dollars each month by the Palestinian Authority. In fact, she tells him, the more Jews he would kill, the more money he'd get. Oh, and uh, when he gets out of prison, Ali would be guaranteed a job with the Palestinian Authority. All this is real. It happens every day, all the time. Sadly, Ali represents hundreds of thousands of Palestinian children who are indoctrinated with hate every moment, every hour. This is child abuse. And child abuse it is. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this Netanyahu speech at the UN. And we'll also hear the story of Micah Avni's father, who was killed by terror terrorists in Israel. He wrote an amazing column, and he recorded it for us. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with Prime Minister Netanyahu's General Assembly speech given earlier this year at the United Nations General Assembly. And Americans need to hear this story of Israel and the countries that surround it, and particularly the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which as a Lebanese guy and an Arab, I've never understood this word conflict because the Jews would love to settle things But the Palestinians have at the core of their covenant and Hamas the destruction of Israel. Pretty hard to negotiate with somebody who wants to destroy you. So we were just listening to part of that speech. Let's continue with Netanyahu contrasting how Israelis raise their children with how Palestinians indoctrinate theirs. We in Israel don't do this. We educate our children for peace. In fact, we recently launched a pilot program, my government did, to make the study of Arabic mandatory for Jewish children so that we can better understand each other, so that we can live together side by side in peace. Of course, like all societies, Israel has fringe elements. But it's our response to those fringe elements. It's our response to those fringe elements that makes all the difference. Take the tragic case of Ahmed Dawabshe. I'll never forget visiting Ahmed in the hospital just hours after he was attacked. A little boy, really a baby, he was badly burned. Ahmed was the victim of a horrible terrorist act perpetrated by Jews. He lay bandaged and unconscious as Israeli doctors worked round the clock to save him. No words could bring comfort to this boy or to his family. Still, as I, as I stood by his bedside, I told his uncle, this is not our people. This is not our way. I then ordered extraordinary measures to bring Ahmed's assailants to justice. And today, the Jewish citizens of Israel, accused of attacking the Dawabsha family, are in jail, awaiting trial. Now, for some, this story shows that both sides have their extremists, and both sides are equally responsible for this seemingly endless conflict. But what Ahmed's story actually proves is the very opposite. It illustrates the profound difference between our two societies. Because while Israeli leaders condemn terrorists, all terrorists, Arabs and Jews alike, Palestinian leaders celebrate terrorists. While Israel jails the handful of Jewish terrorists among us, the Palestinians pay thousands of terrorists among them. So I call on President Abbas. You have a choice to make. You can continue to stoke hatred as you did today, or or you can finally confront hatred and work with me to establish peace between our two peoples. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I hear the buzz. I know that many of you have given up on peace. But I want you to know, I have not given up on peace. I remain committed to a vision of peace based on two states for two peoples. I believe, as never before, that changes taking place in the Arab world today offer a unique opportunity to advance that peace. And that again was Benjamin Netanyahu, and nobody tells that story better. And as promised earlier, we'd now like to share with you a story from Micah Avni. He's the CEO of Peninsula Group Limited, ranked among the 100 most influential people in Israel by The Marker Magazine in 2015 and 2016. And he's raising four children with his wife in Tel Aviv. But this story isn't about Micah the leader or even Micah the father. Let's take a listen to Micah, the son of a great man. And we got this story from the Wall Street Journal. Micah had written a column called The Anti-Israel Poisoning Starts Young. We called up Micah. We were going to interview him, but we thought it would just be better if he read and performed that column. And he did. And we bring it to you now. My father, Richard Lakin, a 76-year-old retired elementary school principal from Connecticut, was on a bus in Jerusalem last October when two young Palestinian men boarded and began shooting and stabbing passengers indiscriminately. Two passengers were killed that awful day and 16 injured, including my father. Despite the efforts of first responders and the nurses and doctors at Hadassah and Karim Hospital, my father died two weeks later. He had been shot in the head and stabbed multiple times in the head, face, chest, and stomach. It was horrific. Over the past year, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what would cause two educated Palestinian men in their 20s to board a public bus and butcher a group of innocent civilians, many of them senior citizens. I'm sorry to report that the Palestinian reaction to the attack has led me to believe that the peace process is more one-sided than ever. My father grew up a fighter for civil rights in America. He took those values with him in 1984 when he emigrated to Jerusalem, where he taught English to Arabs and Jews. He was a kind, gentle-hearted man who dedicated his life to education and promoting peaceful coexistence. Yet Palestinian newspapers praised Ba'alian, one of the terrorists who murdered my father, as a martyr and intellectual. Palestinian Authority President Mohammed Abbas has met with the families of the attackers and praised them as martyrs. A Palestinian scout leader said Ba'alian who was shot and killed by a security guard before he could kill more innocent passengers, was an example for every Palestinian scout. Mohammed Alian, the father of Baalian, has been invited to speak at Palestinian schools and universities about his son, the martyr. He recently spoke to children at Jabal Mukabar Elementary School in East Jerusalem, about a half a mile from where my father lived. Tragically, many Palestinian children, perhaps most, are still taught to honor terrorists and fight for the destruction of Israel. All this would break my father's heart, In 2007, he published a book called Teaching as an Act of Love, summarizing his life's work and educational philosophy. The message of his book is that every child is a miracle that should be nurtured with love. After Baalian's father visited Jabal Muhabar Elementary School, I asked school officials if I could come and share my father's message of peace and coexistence. My offer was rejected. As long as Palestinian leaders nurture a culture of hate, encouraging school children to go out and kill, more violence is inevitable. By encouraging hatred, 
They distance all of us from the love and belief in peaceful coexistence for which my father stood. My father's book begins with a quote from William Penn. I expect to pass through life but once. If, therefore, there be any kindness I can show or any good thing I can do to any fellow being, let me do it now and not defer or neglect it, as I shall not pass this way again. My father lived by those words, if only his murderers had as well. Thank you. And thank you, Micah, for writing that. And what a remarkable thing. So the terrorist's father in in Palestinian territory is invited to go into schools to talk about that hero son who murdered innocents. And when Micah asks to talk in that same school about his father, a peacemaker, he is denied. And this is what the world is up against. And we won't be afraid to call things by their name here on Our American Stories. And as someone who came from Lebanon and who understands the difference between peaceful Muslims, the majority, and radical Islam, which is a a poison. And it's a poison that, well, I don't know how else to get rid of it, but through battle and through education. And you can tell Jews have been trying to do this well, since practically their formation. And it just, it's not going well. And America's learned about this. Well, we've learned about this since 9-11, particularly. We learned about it first when the World Trade Center got hit in 1993, but we just sort of passed it off. And now it's happening with increasing frequency in our great country. And this is what binds us together. Well, so much binds the great countries of the United States and Israel together that that's why we include Israel in our American stories and what's going on there. These are two countries bound together by a value system, by Judeo-Christian heritage, by free enterprise, and so much more. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Micah Avni's reading of his column from the Wall Street Journal, The Anti-Israel Poisoning Starts Young, and we team that up with Benjamin Netanyahu's great speech at the United Nations. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're back with one of our favorite topics, Random Acts of Kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. Also, make sure to leave your story there, and hopefully it can make its way onto Our American Stories right here. And here we begin with a story we found from Denver, Colorado, featuring a very sick little girl who had more important things to do than feel sorry for herself. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you, Marley! She's quite the star and the driving force behind this school fundraiser. In one week, Mount Vista You can see why a school would want to rally behind Marley, a nine-year-old with an infectious smile. She was once the fastest soccer player on her team, 
but last year she was diagnosed with a rare cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma, a malignant soft tissue cancer. She went through 40 weeks of chemo and her kicking foot had to be amputated. It was a tough conversation and so I told her and she, I thought she understood it and then two days later she asked me, so when will it grow back? Once Marley wrapped her mind around it, she also made up her mind. It wasn't going to stop her. In less than a week, she was doing cartwheels on it, literally doing cartwheels, which scared us, but we don't want to tell her she can't do anything. When it came time for Marley to make a wish. Because we had talked about it for a long time. What do you want to do with your wish? So one day she said, you know, if I've got to think about it this hard, I just don't think I need a wish. Instead, Marley decided to give, give hope and comfort to other kids. She decided Build-A-Bear is where her wish would start. Making bears with love. To give to kids. That's good. Who are where she's been. Here we go. In the Pediatric Oncology Center at Children's Hospital. I did that wish because I knew how it felt to be, um, to feel sick at the hospital. So, um... It would make me feel better if I had a Build-A-Bear. 60 bears in Marley's wagon. Donor bears all done. And every single one slated for a patient, a child who desperately needs a smile. Yours is adorable. I hope that they like it and that they feel better when they get it. Today, the Oncology Center takes on a new life, one that, as you can imagine, doesn't normally exist. Kids still have bald heads and machines in tow, but today, they will smile. You want this one? Yeah. <laughs> one by one, bears come off the shelf. Do you want to give her an abrazo and say thank you? Thank you. Yeah. They're given a new name. A white one? All right. He's going to get dirty. Thank right. you so much, sweetheart. And told about the heart Marley placed in all of them. Wait, you had cancer too? Is it all gone? Each one with a wish. It feels good because they would come in before not looking really good, but then they would come, they would finish their bear and then smile. A wish of healing, comfort, and more smiles today than yesterday. Every kid that I saw left here, they were all smiling and hugging their bears. And that's why this isn't where Marley's wish ends. With every bear hug, her wish continues to live on. Amazing story, and I almost want to get Marley on this show, and I think we all got something to learn from someone like this, and this is why when you start to feel like you're a victim, you want to haul out Marley, always. You just want to haul her out. And here, a story from Kenner, Louisiana, and again, this is from randomactsofkindness.org, and this is our Random Act of Kindness segment that we try to do every Friday at this time, because, well, you've had enough of bad news all week long. And it's time to hear something positive. Uh, This one's a simple story of kindness, reminding us that even when the national conversation is polarized, we can take care of each other. The viral image that has everyone talking, just one man and one woman walking in the rain. When I saw this, I thought people need to see that. There are people that are kind on both sides of the color line, and we need to focus more on how we can help each other and how we can be there for each other rather than what sets us apart. I got three of you, and the last one was the best one. Deepak Sani snapped the shot, sharing the sweet moment on Facebook. In the middle of a downpour, the man opens his umbrella and his heart, walking shopper after shopper through a rain-soaked Target parking lot. 
There was no rhyme or reason to doing it. It was just, hey, people need help. James Varnado is the good Samaritan in shining armor who didn't even realize he was caught on camera. I didn't expect somebody to show it, give any kind of recognition or anything like that. I just did what I always do. It was really interesting because people were just really touched. They were taken aback. I mean, no one really wants to get wet, but this guy didn't also have to take it upon himself to help people. And in this time of tension with shootings, violence, and protests capturing headlines, his act of kindness captured hearts. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter if you're the richest person in the world or the poorest person in the world. Somebody needs help, help them. If someone needs help, help them. And they're right. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads. So the media is just going to always pounce on what separates us and what angers people. And, you know, if you're watching the news every day, you'd think these are the most violent times in our city's history. And by the way, these are the least violent times in our city's history. Cops have done an amazing job in our big cities of lowering crime rates. And civilians have been committing less crimes. And so none of these things are being heralded. It's always the outlier. It's the bad cop, boom, on television. It's the it's a couple of crazy kids doing some stupid stuff in a gang. It's on it's on television. And the average person trying to get ahead and do the right thing, that's just not an interesting story to the media. And that's the ultimate bias of the media. And that is to sensationalism, ultimately. And finally, here's a story involving some inmates breaking out of a holding area to get to their jailer in Parker County, Texas. And just when we think we know how a story will go, there's always room for kindness and pleasant surprise. At least eight prisoners behind a locked door, one armed guard across the room. Watch the lower part of the screen as the guard suddenly slumps unconscious. He just, you know, fell over, and I thought it looked like an act or something. I mean, you know, he died right there, man. Nick Kelton and other inmates shouted for help, then managed to bust out of their holding room even though they knew that was dangerous. I was a little worried because when they, they're going to come with their guns drawn on us. The guard had no pulse. Inmates screamed and banged on doors so loud that deputies upstairs in court came running. They thought it was a big old fight going on down there. They thought we was taking over. He had keys and he had a gun. Yeah, it could have been extremely bad situation. Sergeant Ryan Spiegel rushed in first, corralled the inmates, still not completely understanding what was happening. Deputies started CPR. Paramedics arrived, shocked the guard, regained a pulse. Inmates watched life returning. Why did you do that? That's a good man. Saved life. Uh, Nick Kelton says he's a meth addict facing his fourth trip to prison. Parker County Sheriff's Captain Mark Garnett believes prisoners certainly helped the guard and likely saved him. He could have been there 10, 15 minutes. And before anybody, you know, any other staff, any other sheriff's officer, county personnel had walked in there and found him. To show one's true stripes is to reveal character. Nick Kelton and the others went to court expecting to do time, not to give it. I mean, it never crossed my mind not to, whether he's got a gun or a badge, if he falls down, I'm going to help him. It seems natural to me. Yeah. The jailer doesn't want to be identified. He is expected to return to work next week. Ironically, that little holding pen that the inmates broke out of to raise the alarm, that's been reinforced so that that can't happen again. <laughs> Irony. Yeah, there it is. That's the word. And by the way, here on Our American Stories, we talk to guys in prison because they're human beings there. And many of them can be redeemed. Many of them have been there because of bad choices, circumstance, 
But we talked to them, and look what they did here. Great stories. Go to randomactsofkindness.org. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you're listening to Richie Valens, one of his big hits, La Bamba. And we're playing his music because on this day in history, in 1959, rock and roll musicians Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson were killed in a plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa, together with pilot Roger Peterson. Holly was 22 years old, Valens 17 and it's remarkable because we were talking about just before the break how listening to that song, you'd think the guy was 28 or 30. And J.P., the big bopper, Richardson, well, he was the old man in the group. He was 28. The event later became known as the day the music died after singer-songwriter Don McLean so referred to it in his 1971 hit song, American Pie. At the time, Holly and his band, consisting of Waylon Jennings, Tommy Alsop, and Carl Bunch were playing on the Winter Dance Party Tour across the Midwest. Rising artists Valens and Richardson had joined the tour as well. Hi, gang, this is the Big Bopper, and I'll be on your Winter Dance Party coming your way real soon. We'll be swinging and singing and looking forward to saying hello, baby, to all of you in person. Hi, everybody. This is Richie Valens. I will be on the Winter Dance Party coming your way very shortly. I will be having a ball singing for you, and I hope to see you all real soon. Hi, this is Buddy Holly. The Crickets and I are really happy to be coming your way on the winter dance party. We certainly hope to see all our old friends and be making some new ones, too. See you soon. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance... That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day The music died The long journeys between venues on board the cold, uncomfortable tour buses adversely affected the performers with cases of flu, 
and even frostbite. After stopping at Clear Lake, Iowa to perform at the Surf Ballroom, Holly decided to charter a plane to reach their next venue in Moorhead, Minnesota. Richardson, who had the flu, swapped places with Waylon Jennings, taking his seat on the plane while Tommy Elsop lost his seat to Valens on a coin toss. Soon after takeoff, late at night and in a poor, wintry weather conditions, the pilot lost control of the light aircraft, a Beechcraft Bonanza, which subsequently crashed into a cornfield, leaving no survivors. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. The singers were identified as Richie Valens, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, and J.P. Richardson, known professionally as the Big Bopper. The aircraft chartered from the Dwyer Flying Service crashed near Mason City, ironically the setting for the prominent musical The Music Man. The pilot, Roger Peterson of Clear Lake, Iowa, was also killed. The three singers had appeared at the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa last night and were on their way to Fargo, North Dakota. Their small chartered plane crashed in a lonely farmyard about 15 miles northwest of Mason City. Cause of the crash was due to inclement weather conditions. Details upcoming from Action Central News. Jerry Dwyer was the pilot who managed the Mason City Airport and owned that 1947 Beechcraft that crashed. When he realized that the plane hadn't checked in the next morning, he and another pilot decided to fly up to see if they could find any wreckage. And I was looking for anything that looked like a, a wrecked airplane. And I started seeing something ahead of me that uh, I thought was the airplane. I said, there it is. And he said, no. He said, that, that's, uh, that's a hog house. And I said, no, that's the wrecked airplane. So we started to descend right here. And uh, just on this same path, aim right for where the aircraft came to rest. And I pull over here and took a look, and I can see a spot right there where I circled around, and there was the, the wreckage. And I circled, and I was sure it was the wrecked airplane. And I called the sheriff's office. Sheriff Jerry Allen was one of the first to arrive at the crash site. Here's what he saw that day. The uh, uh, aircraft was up against this fence line, and the, there are three bodies uh, outside of the plane. Richard Valenzuela, Richie Valens, was approximately 15 feet this side of the wreckage. Uh, to the left of the wreckage was a person identified as Buddy Holly. About 40 feet beyond the fence line was the uh, uh, body of... Uh, Giles Richardson or the big bopper. I don't understand. Uh, I've investigated many, many accidents, automobiles and otherwise, uh, how three of these bodies got loose from the airplane and landed outside. And uh, the bopper, is, was, was apparently riding in the back seat, was the largest of, of these people. He's a big man, uh, went over the fence as far as he did. Uh, and the, yet the pilot stayed inside the airplane. There wouldn't have been any possibility of any survival, and most certainly with the pilot. Carol Anderson, owner of the Surf Ballroom, where the group had just played the night before, had driven the party to the airport and witnessed the plane's takeoff. He was the one called in by the sheriff to identify the bodies of the musicians. sheriff had it all fenced off already so nobody could go down in there. And I 
asked him if he cared if I went in. He said, no, he said, I don't want you to go in there unless you can stand a gruesome sight. The only thing uh, the big bopper had on for clothes was his shorts. Took everything off, shoes, socks, coat. I don't know how it did that. We knew there was uh, another body there. We knew that we could find a pilot. And uh, I said, there's no way he could be here unless he's wrapped up in that plane somewhere. And uh, I crawled up on top and uh, looked down in there and I seen the sole of a shoe rat rolled with cable rolled all around it tight. Had it been reduced to just a ball of cable and uh, the motor and, and the body it was shortened and I don't know where the landing gear went to. Only the tail was spread open on the top of it. It was a pretty gruesome picture. Uh, Richie Valens lost half of his head. Unbelievable. As people were discovering the crash site near Clear Lake, Iowa, the rest of Buddy Holly's band were asleep on the tour bus pulling into Moorhead, Minnesota, completely unaware of what had happened. Here's musician Waylon Jennings describing how he found out about the crash. I woke up. Tommy also was sitting across from me. And the tour manager came and said, Waylon, come here, I've got to talk to you. And I don't know why or how or anything, but I knew something bad was wrong. And I said, no. I said, you go, Tommy. And I walked around for a half a day. And then I thought maybe I was called home. And sure enough, when I called home, everybody back in Lubbock and back in my hometown it started that morning about 8 or 9 o'clock, you know, when they found everything and said that Buddy Holly and his band. So my mother and all my brothers and everything thought I had died, you know, on the plane. Here, Waylon Jennings talks about how he lost his seat on that flight and the last words he spoke to Buddy Holly that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Last time I saw Buddy, he had me go get us some hot dogs. And we're eating hot dogs and sitting there, and, and he's laughing at me. He's leaning back against the wall in the cane bottom chair. And he's laughing and said, you're not going with us tonight, huh, on the plane? And I said, no. And he said, well, I hope your old bus freezes up. And laughed at me and said, oh, 40 below out there is going to get awful cold. And I said, well, I hope your old airplane crashes. Now I was 19, 20 years old, and I liked it. I was so afraid for many years that somebody was going to find out I said that. You know, it's stupid that you would think that. But I did think it. Somehow you, you blame yourself, you know. The Winter Dance Party Tour didn't stop. Waylon Jennings and Tommy Alsop continued performing for two more weeks, with Jennings taking Holly's place as the lead singer. Meanwhile, the funerals of the victims were being held individually. Holly and Richardson were buried in Texas, Valens in California, and Pilot Peterson in Iowa. This is Our American Stories, The Day the Music Died, This Day in History, in 1947. A long, long time ago I can still remember How that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver with every paper I deliver 
Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride, but something touched me deep inside the day the music died. Stories, and we came across a great story in the Wall Street Journal, and the headline was "Mascots Are Getting a Hall of Fame," and it's making Benny the Bull emotional. And so, when you get a headline like that, you got to dig in. And the Wall Street Journal does so many really great Americana stories on their front page. That's the WallStreetJournal.com. Go there and subscribe. WSJ.com. And joining us. Well, we had to talk to David Raymond because, well, he's the guy behind all this. And David, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And anytime that we're talking about furry fun, um, I got to be a part of it. Well, David, to start with, you were the original Philly fanatic from 1978 to 1993. And bless your heart, if I could be any mascot anywhere, I would have wanted to be the Philly fanatic. What fun watching him or her? Was there ever a her do his or her well, thing? Yeah, yeah, there actually is. There's there's uh, Phoebe who is the fanatic's mother, and Phyllis who is um, let's just call her his special interest. <laughs> uh-huh. Very nice. And what was that? How did you audition for that job? How did you prepare for that job? Is there is there a way to prepare for the role the way an actor would prepare for a role? But it's it's funny, you know, with what we do with our business, you know, we, we find and performers, train performers, we place performers a full-time job. Um, uh, we, we help the, um, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers fill their new performer position, um, and, and we do it quite frequently. So there's a real process now, but back when I started, I was the guy that was dumb enough to say yes to having a 300-pound green furry Muppet entertain the same fans at Boots and the Easter Bunny. So... Um, I was low man on the totem pole. I was an intern from in 76 and 77 with the Phillies. And 78, when they created what looked like a very bad idea on paper, um, they needed a few things. And one of them was somebody to commit to stay for all the games. And I, I was doing that. I'm a big Phillies fan. Um, very good friends with the Carpenter family who, who owned the ball club before Bill Giles and his group purchased it. And, um, you know, it was a it was a dream for me to be there as an intern. I, and I was doing the worst jobs you can imagine. So I figured, you know, so what? I figured this thing will last for a couple of weeks and, and it'll be panned in the media. And but I can always say I was the guy that first put on that crazy costume that they that they threw away. So uh, so there was no plan. There was no preparation. Frankly, I had to go to the Phillies and say, what is it that you want me to do? And, and they said, go out and have fun. And when I went when I went running out of the room, after they told me that, because I thought, well, this is great. I'm getting paid to have fun. They screamed at me, G-rated fun. <laughs> they, were, they just told a college student to go have a good time, and that was his prime directive. So 
um, you know, no, no real plan. It, it, we were just, um, it, we were just throwing stuff up on the wall and this was one of those things that stuck. And what a beautiful thing and what a beautiful prerogative to be given. I mean, you had a clean slate. You could just about do anything you wanted to do in front of thousands and thousands of people. And you got to hang out in a ballpark. Oh yeah. And, and what was even more exciting for somebody my age, you know, 20 years old at the time um, was that, you know, I was a huge uh, baseball fan and I was a huge Phillies fan. I got to mingle and, and mix and get to know um, the, the Phillies players and, and had some, still have some long standing friendships with them uh, and then met the, the visiting players, even though they didn't know who I was, but they, they knew who the fanatic was. And I, it was like living the dream and, and actually for a little bit pretending uh, like I was a member of a major league baseball team or I was like a player so, so that was the, you know, the icing on the cake. It was, and you got, you got to see some pretty great teams. There were some really great Philadelphia Philly te- Phillies teams during that time, weren't there? Well, it was really the beginning of um, un- until 2008, um, it, it, their run. It was the beginning of the Phillies' first real sustained uh, success on the field. So they had the year before, they had made it to – um, you know, into the playoffs, but got beat uh, by the Dodgers, and um, our, our hopes were dashed once again. And when the Fanatic was created, it started that movement into not only uh, winning, um, you know, a National League championship, but winning a World Series. So, yeah. so it was really a wonderful time. Uh, through my tenure, they they made it to three World Series. They they won one and and had a number of. Uh, um, you know, those National League championships. So it was really, really uh, uh, the best time uh, to have you know, been part of the team. Hey, did sure. you get a ring? Did you get a ring? I, I did, actually. I got three yes. rings. I, I, I have a World Series ring from 80, and I have the two losers rings from, from 83 and 93. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of public speaking, and, and I do meet and greets afterwards, and people just love to come up and see those rings, try them on, take selfies. So, it, it, that has been a really fun thing for me to stay connected with the Philadelphia fans that way. So you've had a big fight with your wife. You're really bummed out or you're just hung over. How does the Philly fanatic get psyched up and just get it done? Well, you know, it's, it really is about the power of fun. It, you know, I went through, uh, you know, the, I, I went through my marriage training program, like a lot of people could can relate to out there. And uh, I was devastated when my first marriage didn't make it. And my my mother, unfortunately, passed away when she was 59 from brain cancer. And those both of those times were when at the height of my work as a fanatic. And when I was going through those difficult things, I times I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. And what I found out very quickly was working in costume was the, the perfect distraction. And I discovered people were drawn to the fanatic and are drawn to mascots because it's this powerful fun. It's, it's the distraction of silly entertainment that for the moment that you're involved, you forget all your problems. So as the performer, I had the ability to be somebody completely different. So I had that distraction continuously or any time that I wanted it. So my job became one of the healthiest functions uh, for my emotion and my, you know, my, you know, for my, my mental activity, you it was bet. the best. You bet. And by the way, I might add that it's a relief and release for a lot of people that go to the park, too, David. I think that's why so many people love sports. A distraction from the ordinary burdens and strains and stresses of regular life. We're talking to David Raymond, 
And by the way, I love your title, the Emperor of Fun and Games at Raymond Entertainment Group. And he's also the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. We'll get into that in a bit after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, talking to David Raymond. And we're talking about mascots. And by the way, people love their mascots. We're going to get into it in a little bit about college mascots, professional mascots, the variety, the full, the full scope. Some of them funny, some of them serious, everything from wolverines to blue hens. And we're going to cover them all. But a little bit more about you, David, and, and this idea of a Hall of Fame. Um, when did it come to you and... What were the difficulties in bringing this to light? Well, it was like, like a lot of great ideas. Uh, it wasn't mine. That's the first thing. Uh, I, I wish it was completely mine, but it was actually my, my employee, Chris Bruce, uh, had come to me after the, um, the sausages were attacked in Milwaukee. If you remember that episode where Randall Simon hit one of the, uh, one of the famous sausages over the head as it ran by the dugout uh, in Miller Park that day. <laughs> And it became a big sto- news story. I was getting calls from all the major uh, um, news brands, CBS, NBC, and on, uh, Fox, uh, NPR. They all called me, wanted to know what we thought of this, this mascot abuse. And we decided to do a mascot march on the city of Philadelphia to introduce a Bill of Rights for mascots as a <laughs> kind of a silly, fun promotion. And we got so much media coverage, we did it the second year. And that was 2003, 2004. And in 2005, Chris came up to me in the office and said, hey, this is the time for us to have a mascot Hall of Fame. We've talked about it before. You know, let's leverage all this fun we've had. And that's what we did. And we inducted that first year, of course, the fanatic, the Phoenix Gorilla, and the, the famous chicken from San Diego. Yep. The three, arguably the three characters that changed, you know, the genre, the genre of mascots. And, uh, and we had, again, tremendous success. The owner of the Phoenix Suns actually came all the way from, he's a billionaire, Robert Sarver, came to Philadelphia to introduce the Phoenix Gorilla. And, and I knew when he showed up, I said, this is really tapping into a real passion. People love and believe in their mascot brands like they're real. And when they get an honor like this, they take it seriously. Um, so from that point forward, we, we've inducted 17 total uh, mascots including um, 10 pro and seven colleges. And we did a number of live inductions, both and also in front of the, the inductees crowds. And the city of Whiting called me about four years ago and said, we want you here. We're the silly little wacky city that could. And, and it's a perfect, you know, entertainment piece for us. We're building an entertainment complex. We've, we've built a beautiful uh, lakefront on Lake Michigan. It's only 30 miles South, uh, east of Chicago and um, in northwest Indiana, and it was perfect. You know, we went there, we met with the mayor, and sure enough, here we are, groundbreaking. The, the bulldozers just dug the hole the other day, and uh, in 2018 early, we're going to open the doors to the Mascot Hall of Fame. 
I love some of the puns here. There's a lot of physical education happening there, and the fur is coming. And But the thing is, it's not just all fun and games. In the article, in the Wall Street Journal article, I'm going to read just to touch you because it's so good. Barry Anderson, who performed for more than a decade at Chicago, at Chicago Bulls games as Benny the Bull, who isn't a member of the Hall, choked up when simply talking about the prospect. I get very emotional about the work, said Mr. Anderson, who is known for his acrobatic trampoline dunks during timeouts and firing T-shirts into the crowd using a bullzooka. Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, the feathery frontman for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks, are considered strong candidates for the Hall this year, says David Raymond. And, and what I love about this is you're doing the same sort of marketing and lead-up that the NFL Hall of Fame does, that the Baseball Hall of Fame does. And, and how's that working? Is the sports world and the media picking up on this each year? It, it, it is, we, and that's what we were taught all the way back in 2003 when we did that mascot march. Anytime you get a group of mascots together, it looks funny, so B-roll footage looks great. Um, it, it, it is funny. Um, it, it's, it's a perfect story as a kicker at the end of a broadcast, and, and we just continue to get that type of excitement. However, it's become even more emotional and connected because we're in the midst of a of a popular vote right now where you can go on mascothalloffame.com and vote on the current ballot, which, by the way, fast forward, does include Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, uh, as well as Slugger, Stuff from Orlando, Harry Dog from Georgia, um, and, and the Penn State Nittany Lions. So you can vote for any of those right now. And it's, it's just built tremendous passion and emotion with the constituents and the fans and, and alumni and uh, and faculty um, and people in those organizations. So um, it's been really relatively easy to do. I, I mean, the Phillies just gave us the largest grant uh, that any Major League Baseball team has done. Uh, we're going to other all other Major League organizations and asking for philanthropic support. It's, it's a nonprofit organization. Yep. Um, and we're, we're teaching STEM and STEAM principles to elementary school kids as the backdrop of the educational piece to probably what would be best described as the Disney of mascots. It's going to be an unbelievable environment for families and people want to come back again and again. It's just really a wonderful, um, wonderful facility. And we're talking to David Raymond and mascothalloffame.com is where you can go. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group. They're in the serious business of developing and creating full character branding programs and mascots for sports teams, colleges and universities and also corporations, and actually, uh, Our American Stories, we're going to need a mascot, too. So we'll have to talk about that offline. <laughs> you know, one of the funny stories I like is, my goodness, people are really politicking for this, like the Oscars. Jazz Bear from the Utah Jazz, Bas- Jazz basketball team submitted a video in which Utah Senator Orrin Hatch extolled the mascot significance in the community. And the video ends with a camera panning out to reveal Jazz Bear polishing the senator's shoes. That's really good. I love this it, it stuff. Is, it is good. And, yet, and you know, just, it, Lee, it's interesting with the, you know, with the political climate we're in, with, um, you know, with all kinds of um, push and pull, the, whatever side that you're on, um, and, and some nastiness for sure, you know, maybe the end of some political correctness that, that cuts down on creativity. And when you see a guy like Orrin Hatch willing to you know have a little bit of fun in a video that's a little less reverent and he does it because it's part of a mascot routine 
That is what mascots do. It, 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 we step off of our perch for a minute and say, yeah, I can have a little bit of fun. And if, it can, if we can get somebody like Orrin Hatch to poke some fun at himself, you know, we're, we're – I mean, I, as the fanatic, I, I ran into uh, Ted Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy and, and, and worked with all kinds of celebrities and, and politicians. And every single one of them stops for a moment, gets a hug and a kiss and a high five from, from a mascot. So exactly. it, it works. It really is powerful. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the some of the work you do developing mascots and the like. What what goes into that? Somebody calls you up and says, you know, we're we're thinking about you know something. And I mean, how do how does how does somebody pitch you? How do you do your work? How do you do your business? Well, the first the first thing that happened. I mean, we use we use our backstory as being experts in the business in thirty eight years of, of being successful. That's how we get people to us. But when they start with us, they all want to know what it looks like, and we tell them quickly. What it looks like is about fourth or fifth on the priority list. The first thing that you need to do is you need to plan for success, you know, like any other business venture. But second, the most important thing that you do is it's about storytelling. So we tell all of our clients to go back and try to develop the concept of a story that connects with their, their organization, their, their alumni, their fans, their community, and build a story that automatically will have buy-in from those audience uh, touch points. Uh, Disney taught that. You know, Disney said, you know, when Bambi's mother gets killed in the first few minutes uh, of that movie, you think, my gosh, this is a this is a cartoon movie done by Disney, and here's a, you know, a mother gets murdered in front of its of its young. Uh, how can that be Disney? Well, Disney got you to care about the characters. So for us, it's storytelling and making a flawed character that people can relate to and that they'll care about. If you do those things you will have a wonderful, powerful character brand. And by the way, it's not always fun in games. You know, a lot of these mascots, like the great, you know, characters, the old cartoon characters like Wile E. Coyote, I mean, they have a little devilish side and playful side to them. And sometimes there are even some fights. Talk about that line that the mascot has to draw between being too nice and being a little devilish. Well, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, tempers flare uh, when there's passion. So I, I've seen more mascot, actual real mascot fights in the collegiate environment because of, of, of how passionate and important those games are. Um, but, you know, there's occasional fan that's had a few uh, adult beverages that decides that he doesn't like the mascot, uh, you know, putting his arm around his girlfriend. Um, <laughs> so you, it, it's a sixth sense that you have or it's common sense that you have to try to keep your wits about you. And, and, and one thing is to make sure you take breaks before you get tired, because when you get tired, you make bad decisions. But it's a dangerous environment. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, mascot injuries. So, so it's not the easiest job in the world. you got to be safe and take care of yourself and, and use your common sense. You bet. And when we come back, we're going to run through a whole bunch of mascots, some of the favorites here on the show. And we're going to tell a mascot story about old Miss mascot, Colonel Reb who was sort of put in a lockbox, and then their new mascot had to come in, and, well, nobody likes the new mascot. And what's it like to be a mascot that's not loved? That's got to be a bummer. This is Our American Stories, the Mascot Hall of Fame. More after these messages.
Larkin stories in our final segment with David Raymond, the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group, and that's RaymondEG.com. And by the way, he has Dave Raymond's Mascot Boot Camp, which Alex should go to, too, and see what that's like. Uh, we want to go through some great mascots now, and uh, we want to tell a great mascot story as well about old Mrs. Mascot. But let's run through the two different types of mascots. They're, they're kind in the costumes, sort of the entertainment mascots, and there the, are those beloved prized animals. Um, talk about some of the great mascots you don't have at the Hall of Fame because they're actually living, or do you? Well, you know, it's, it, is, it is a discussion we've had. We have a criteria, believe it or not. Even, even though our tongue's firmly planted in our cheeks, we, we do have a process. And the criteria does state that it needs to be a costumed character. So it would, uh, based on that criteria, it eliminates uh, either the, the live animals or some of the human beings. Um, but we think that there's going to be a place for those types of characters. We think there's going to be a place for the actual performers, which we're not talking about highlighting yet. Um, you know, and, and certainly some of the human characters. Uh, um, you know, Max Packin was the one who started, well, Al Schacht before him and Mal pa- Max Packin. They were the first human characters that were somewhat like clowns that entertained during baseball games uh, in the 50s. Um, and Max, you know, continued on until, um, you know, the late 70s. Uh, so so they, they kind of set the tone for that, that I think the chicken came after that. But great animal like like Ugga for the University of Georgia um, and Harry Dog happens to be the, the the costume character that's on the ballot this year but Ugga you know there's a long line of these revered uh, bulldogs that are actually buried uh, right uh, as part of the stadium complex where people go as a pilgrimage to see the graves of the Uggas I mean this, it's wonderful love and passion uh, War Eagle for Auburn is an, is another example of a of an animal mascot, and, and there are there are many um, that are used in the case of stirring up the crowd or, or getting this great passion um, behind those, and they are usually combined with a um, you know with a costume character as well. Um, Florida State was an example you brought up where where they have the chief that comes out and puts the spear into the ground at the fifty yard line, and, and I mean you've never heard a stadium erupt any louder than I never he heard any that. sound like that in my life and I thought to be that chief just once it and come onto a stadium and do that it wow would be phenomenal and, yep. and you know and, and it's a skilled person who can ride a horse and the horse is beautiful and and and, and I think it's a wonderful reflection um, you know of that uh, of that community that has agreed uh, that they appreciate that type of reverence that uh, Florida State gives them. And, and that's why they were not struck down by the NCAA's uh, requirement to do so, because, um, you know, that that Indian uh, tribe had had said this is something that's reverent and revered. And, and we appreciate that type of illustration. Yep. So so it works. I mean, it, you know, political correctness aside, there's times when these things work because of the pure passion and understanding of the fan base. You bet. And so let's rip through, and I know you can't be partial in these matters, but talk about some of the, 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 the great characters through history and up to the present uh, in college and in pro sports, uh, and, and particularly which sports do the best job at this and which sports have the most mascots. Is football Does football do a better job? Does baseball uh, do a better job? Which sport has the most mascots? 
Well, I, I would I would say that the, the the one organization top to bottom that appreciates it, that stewards mascot brands, uh, that merchandises mascot brands the best is the NBA, um, and it, and I appreciate the understanding from the New York office. They 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 actually give an award out to the best NBA mascot of the year, uh, and they send people out to watch the NBA environment and. Uh, game ops and entertainment they give them awards for each of those and, the, and the, every year the mascot the nba gives uh one of the mascots that title uh, so i so i really appreciate what the nba does i think the lowest on the scale of those uh, um, of all of those items would be the nhl or maybe even soccer and that's in part because the culture and the history of those sports has never been um i guess the best way to describe it, has never been fond of the concept of a mascot being powerful some of them have them, and some of them do them do them well in the NHL. But for the most part, the culture of hockey and the culture of soccer coming over from Europe makes it difficult for mascots to be successful. Now, I say that with the fact that we are actually working with Manchester City over in the U.K. to work on their character brands and make them stronger. So there are some exceptions. I think in the, in the history of, of mascots, I think the collegiate sector is the one um, that has created characters that maybe don't look the best in terms of a costume, but have the most support because of, of the passion. So virtually every single college, you know, from Alabama and Big Al all the way to the, the, the banana slugs. I mean, you've got, or, yep. the, or, the, or the artichokes, believe it or not, with their football team has the word chokes on the side of their helmet, yep. which, the, which their, their coach quipped it's difficult to recruit for a team when your nickname is the jokes. So, so I, I really think that across the board, there will always be an illustration of a great character that's been branded well. And then at the same time, there are characters that probably should not have even been conceived. Uh, you know, Puffy the Taco comes to mind out in San Antonio for minor league baseball. Um, so, so I really think from a professional standpoint, the NBA is the best. The collegiate sector, I think, has the most history and passion, and, and they celebrate all of that. So if you go to the University of Kansas, um, you will see the story of the of the original Baby J that was really built in somebody's basement. Yep. Uh, a young young lady who was a big fan built Baby J, and they have the original Baby J costume that she built in a giant case. So, so it, it's kind of all over the map, um, but I think what remains is the passion. Um, and the celebration of of organizations that people uh, love and and mm. will revere. It's so true. Here at Ole Miss, Colonel Reb was really revered for many years. I, I think a fo- f- few folks in the faculty said that it was offensive. That some people took offense, though it was never really proven. And uh, time and time again, people would do polling, and no one found it offensive. It looked a lot like Colonel Sanders, but they just put it in a lockbox. And then they had people vote. No one wanted to vote. And next thing you know, there's this black bear. It started running around the stadium. And, David, you have to see it because no one gives him a high five. And he, he hides half the time in the big football and basketball games. He hides because the fans don't like him. And there's nothing worse than being a mascot who's not loved at home games, David. I'm thinking yeah, well, I would take pills before well, I... Well, Lee, listen, this is perfect because, you know, I'm the expert. I'm the high-paid consultant. Yeah. So I would say this. It's not a good idea to create a, ba- a mascot that nobody likes. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much a bad idea. Right. And last, just the last thought, the mascot boot camp. Describe it. we got about a minute left for you. Uh, describe what goes on at that boot camp. 
it's really it started for serious performers that wanted to get better at their craft and we treat it very much like an acting class and there's some there's enormous uh, similarities to what you would do as an actor. Uh, you know, you have to know who you're portraying and what their attitudes are. Um, but what it's grown into is is actually us starting to develop fantasy mascot camps for people who always say, man, I would love to be the fanatic. And for a day of training, uh, and then we find an event with costumes and let these, uh, and some are uh, adults as, into their 60s, and some are as young as seven years old. Um, and we, we teach them how to be safe and how to have fun, and then we put them in costumes and take them to an event. And when people come out of that, they, they tell you, like I did the first time I did The Fanatic, that's the greatest thing I've ever done. Um, never had more fun in my life. Um, you know, some, some people are dealing with, with physical maladies like, um, like autism, and, and we make them happy too. So, so oh, David, I have, I have so many them. physical and mental maladies, and I want to be the Philly fanatic. So I want to come to the boot camp, and I want to take you up on that. That would be nothing would make me more thrilled than to go out in front of an audience and be the fanatic. I've been talking to David Raymond. And he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. And you can go to mascotholoffame.com. Also, Raymond Entertainment Group. That's RaymondEG.com. David Raymond, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee. I loved it. You bet. And this is, again, Our American Stories. We love sports. We love mascots. American stories and we've been talking about mascots because of a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal about the mascot hall of fame and there's nothing more American than sports and the way we well the way we put so much of our energy and passion into it some people think it's silly I think it's just fantastic and David Rabin had joined us for the last few segments and he's the founder of the mascot hall of fame and it was himself the original Philly fanatic of the Philadelphia Phillies now we're going to bring you one of the other mascots mentioned in that article in the Wall Street Journal, the man behind another legendary mascot known as Clutch the Bear of the Houston Rockets. And joining us now is Robert Bodwin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, you bet. And should we call you the artist formerly known as Clutch? Yeah, the deadmascot.com, the artist formerly known as Clutch.com, RobertBodwin.com. I answer to all these names and all these websites. Excellent. So I love it. Are. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us how you got to be Clutch. How did this happen? You know, I think my story is very similar to a lot of professional mascots. You know, there's only about 125 guys nationwide that do this full-time for a living. And I think the vast majority would kind of say that they fell into it. Uh, it's not like you set out as a child uh, to be a mascot performer uh, as a profession. Um, I didn't even know it was a profession when I started doing it in high school and then got to Delaware at the university. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, did it for the Wissahickon High School. I was the Trojan. Um, I wore a, I, my face showed, and I wore body armor and painted my face and wore a kilt. And then when I got to college, I started the mascot there, the University of Delaware Blue Hen, a UD character in 1993, and just kind of met some cheerleaders freshman year, told them I did it in high school, and they said, yeah, you should try out. 
Uh, so I did, and I, I won the role. Did it in, in high school or college, and then started to realize that there's guys that did this full time year round as a profession, uh, and that's kind of when I started aspiring to do it. Uh, met Dave Raymond that you mentioned earlier, who uh, has been on your program. He was the original fanatic. He had just retired when I started the character at Delaware, but his father was our football coach, Tubby Raymond, and uh, Dave was on the sidelines all the time. So I kind of looked up to Dave as a uh, trailblazer and, uh, you know, kind of a founder of the profession. Uh, and uh, then I kind of realized that people do do this and uh, started auditioning uh, for jobs come uh, the summer after my junior year and won the Rockets audition in 1995. And uh, kind of went to school to be an accountant, but came out wearing fur. Unbelievable. And, uh, I spent, <laughs> spent 21 years at the Rockets. Uh, and i got to be honest with you, um, I by far, this career by far exceeded my wildest dreams. I, you know, I first got into it to kind of be funny and goof around and be center of attention in a costume. And that license to kind of break the, the rules of social engagement, invade people's space, and uh, improv. But in the time that I've spent here, I've gotten to do so much more with it. We've done 1,750 school shows in front of 1.2 million Houston youth. I did a school show last year. A teacher came up to me at the end of it and said, man, that show was even better the second time around. And I said, oh, were you a teacher at the school uh, you know, that I did the year before and transferred? And she said, no, I saw it in fourth grade. <laughs> so uh, it, it made me feel both insulted that I'm now 42 yeah. and uh, like I in, like I affected a generation of Houstonians with their, their education. Uh, we wrote seven different storybooks. I've traveled the globe to 12 different countries, performed on armed forces entertainment tours on military bases overseas. Uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. And uh, the Houstonians that have allowed me into their hearts over the years I thank immensely. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, you received yeah. attention in an internet meme that involved a man being shot down during a halftime marriage proposal at a Rockets <laughs> game in 2008 after the woman said no and stormed <laughs> off the court. Tell us what happened next. Well, um, without divulging any trade secrets, uh, some of those bits are staged, some aren't. And we kind of leave our fans guessing as to which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, I, I remember that bit well. This was back when uh, YouTube was starting to gain more and more popularity for watching stuff. And I think we got 11 million hits on that in just a week or so's time. And we started getting calls from around the globe. A, uh, a TV station in Japan did a story on it. And uh, it, was, it was a memorable moment uh, that I, I definitely consider in one of the top of my career. And really had the, uh, the crowd at first shocked and in disbelief and then kind of offended. <laughs> they were mad at that woman for saying no to, uh, to the proposal, at least publicly, and uh, created quite a, a, a stir. Well, whether it was true or not, we just, we're just, you're not going to divulge, are you? You're not giving it up, are you? <laughs> right here, you can make you know, history. You can tell us. I always say that a, a true uh, magician never reveals the secrets uh, to his tricks. That is so And I true. kind of view this as, uh, as that, magic uh, and the whole craft of mascotting. You bet the craft of mascotting. Can you tell us one of the crazier things you've seen or experienced as a mascot? Oh, my goodness. There's so many. In 1998, I accidentally shot Katino Mobley in the chest with our T-shirt gun, and we haven't had a T-shirt gun at the Houston Rockets 
since then. Um, one of the cheerleaders was looking one way, but running the other way and accidentally banged into me. And we had cheerleaders on the court to throw to the lower level because this gun, which we affectionately called the BFG, I'll let you figure out what the F stands for. Uh, but the BFG was so powerful, we only shot it to the upper level. And they had to throw to the lower level. Well, she's looking one way, uh, bangs into the back of me, and I'm in the costume, I don't see her coming, knocks me forward to my knees, sets off the gun, and I'm only 20 feet from the huddle where Rudy T's instructing the team at a timeout. The T-shirt rockets right into rockets, so to speak, aha, uh -huh, <laughs> into the huddle, drops Catino Mobley like a sack of bricks. Right there. They had to cart him off the court. You want to talk about, and I had no clue what happened, because I'm in the costume. I just get knocked down. I heard the gun go off. I jump right back up and finish the T-shirt toss, and there's the stupid bear with his big grin painted on his face, like, that, who wants a shirt? Right after I just shoot our starting forward in the chest <laughs> and knock him out of the game. Um, I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, my first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year-old or like a little four-year-old child would. What I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. <laughs> a big, huge guffaw. And I'm like kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. And unbeknownst <laughs> to me, what he had done, and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there. So I don't feel it. And he looks next door at the camera and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape. And I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat, making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finish the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he's, you know, kind of humped me from behind. And then I thank him for it. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on about the stories. I ruined an MLK Day parade by accident one time. Uh, we do this MLK Day parade every single year. We're one of the highlights of the parade. I'm in the van. Uh, I'm in my big mascot van. I'm sitting on the hood, and I shoot off streamers one after another, cannons, streamer cannons. Well, my assistant had accidentally packed these Mylar metallic uh, streamers. Well, we're going right by the big main grandstand area and the booth with the DJ and the music and the PA announcer. And, of course, I want to lay it on thick there because that's the big, important, crowded area of the parade. And what I don't realize is most of these cannons are paper cannons, but he gives me a Mylar one that's metal, and it goes up into the air, catches onto the power lines, and blows one of the transformers out. <laughs> I hear a huge explosion, and again, I'm in costume. I'm like, what the heck was that? thinking that like a bomb went off or something and i had no clue what it was well what it was was one of the transformers and i blew the power out for like a four block radius including what was powering the entire stage at the parade <laughs> so the pa the music everything went out the rest of the day oh that's a great and job. i don't realize this until after the fact so i'm like oh great i just ruined the martin luther king jr parade well what a great story and you got about a minute left here tell us what it was like to win a spot in the Mascot Hall of Fame? Oh, it was great. It was uh, humbling, uh, especially because it's from a lot of the guys that do this every day for their 
their career and their life, your peers, uh, not just, you know, uh, people that really know the insides of the, the profession and the daily grind of it and the, and the challenge of being creative and writing your own material, producing it, directing it, and uh, starring in it. Uh, so it was humbling. It was great. It was one of the great honors of my career. I can't wait to see them uh, finish construction on it and visit it up in Whiting, Indiana. Uh, so it, it, was, it was great. Well, we look forward to meeting you there. We want to be there when, when the induction occurs. We've been talking to Robert Bodwin, and he is the artist formerly known as Clutch. And you can go to robertbodwin.com and catch up with his life, where he is at, and Thank you for those great, great stories, Robert. Man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing inspirational speaking now as a career in marketing consulting. So any of your listeners out there that uh, would like to reach out to me for a speech or for some consulting help, I would love to entertain uh, a discussion with them. You bet. That's robertbodwin.com, and that's Robert B-O-U-D-W-I-N.com. The artist formerly known as Clutch, and that is Clutch from the Houston Rockets their dear and endearing mascot. This is Our American Stories.